Father God, thank you for the chance to uh, once again come and study your word. I pray that you would use your word this morning to stir up our affections for Jesus and to transform us to be like Jesus. I pray that by your Holy Spirit you convict us of sin, lead us into truth, so that we might be more faithful and more fruitful disciples as a result. Amen. This is a uh, map of our nation. And uh, in the state of Western Australia, in the uh, little blue circle, there is a little blue square. And inside the little blue square, you would find the area known as Hutt River. Uh, Hutt River is a small community consisting of five farms and about 30 people. Uh, They grow wheat, barley, lupins, lamb, uh, wool, wildflowers. Uh, In 1970, Leonard Casey ran a farm at Hutt River and found himself having a long-running dispute with the Western Australian government over wheat allocations, that is, how much wheat he was allowed to sell from his Hutt River property. And the dispute dragged on for a a very long time with no resolution in sight, and eventually Leonard Casey did something truly drastic. He got together with the other farms in Hutt River, and on April 21st, 1970, they declared that the area of Hutt River was no longer part of Australia. They declared that they were seceding from the Commonwealth of Australia. This little farming community was going to be its own independent nation known as the Hutt River Province. Uh, Leonard Casey declared himself to be His Royal Highness, Prince Leonard. He, uh, he even made a, uh, a rock with his face on it. <laughs> now, the big reason why they declared themselves to be an independent nation, as soon as they were an independent nation, they declared they were no longer subject to Australia's taxation laws and therefore refused to pay any tax. Now, to be clear, the government of Australia does not recognise Hutt River as an independent state. There's been uh, long-running court cases chasing the families of Hutt River for millions of dollars in unpaid taxes. Uh, Now, one time in 1977, Australia Post decided to stop delivering mail to Hutt River since, after all, they weren't really part of Australia. Well, did that make Prince Leonard mad? He sent a royal edict to the Governor-General of Australia on December 2nd, 1977, declaring war on Australia. Well, the war raged on for several days. There was no sign of uh, gunfire, no casualties to speak of, but the War of 77 was a great victory for the uh, little nation of Hutt River because they got their mail back and peace was declared. Uh, Prince Leonard passed away at the beginning of this year and he uh, handed the the, uh, throne to his son, Prince Graham, uh, pictured here uh, prior to his ascension to the throne. Uh, Prince Graham, is the new king, is putting his mark on the kingdom. He's been busily forming his cabinet. Uh, Prince Graham is the foreign minister. He's uh, also the minister for education and the minister for finance. He is the minister responsible for the Royal Mint of Hutt River and he is also the Chancellor for the Hutt River Province Royal College of Advanced Research. Hutt River Province has its own flag, it has its own uh, number plates, it even has its own currency. This is a $100 Hutt River coin. Um, Somewhat conveniently, one Hutt River dollar equals one Australian dollar. So that's handy. They even have their own postage stamps. Take that, Australia Post. 
Um, if you took an international trip to visit the province of Hutt River, I suspect you would find it's just a couple of farms with an eccentric leader and a pretty cool gift shop. The folks in Hutt River don't want to be under the rule of Australia. They don't want to abide by Australian law. They want to be in charge of their own puny little kingdom. And I wonder when it comes to following God if there are times when we don't want God to be in charge anymore either. Times when we take back the throne. Times when we make ourselves the head of state of our own puny little kingdoms. I've got my own flags. I've got my own stamps. In Nehemiah chapter 5, we find Nehemiah facing the perennial problem of sin. At the beginning of the series, we saw that God chose Abraham and told him he was going to have many descendants. Abraham's children would be the people of God. They would be his people. God would reveal himself to Abraham's family, and through Abraham's family, he would reveal himself to the rest of humanity. Uh, God leads the people of Israel into their own land, but they oh so quickly turn from him. And then because of their sin, they were evicted from the land God gave them. Deuteronomy 4, God warns, Today I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you. If you break my covenant, you will quickly disappear from the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. And when the land of Judah was defeated by the nation of Babylon, uh, the commander of the army, Nebuzaradan, he tells Jeremiah, the Lord your God decreed this disaster for this place, and now the Lord has brought it about. He has done just as he said he would. All this happened because you people sinned against the Lord and did not obey him. Even the Babylonians knew about Judah's sin. And so then God uses King Cyrus of Persia to begin setting free the people of Judah, allowing the rebuilding of the Jewish nation. By God's grace, God's people have a new beginning and a new chance. God's people face many obstacles and challenges rebuilding their nations. God's people have many enemies working against them, but their biggest enemy of all is the sin in their own lives. They had many enemies working against them, but they worked against themselves by continuing to ignore God's ways. Judah's greatest enemy is also your greatest enemy. That's sin, and that's what we need to talk about today. Uh, chapter 5 of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah encounters the problem of sin among God's people. Nehemiah 5 verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. Now, we're very used to the idea of paying interest on credit cards and home loans, but God's people were not to charge interest to their fellow Jews. Uh, Deuteronomy 23 says, Do not charge interest on the loans you make to a fellow Israelite, whether you loan money or food or anything else. You may charge interest to foreigners, but you may not charge interest to Israelites, so the Lord your God may bless you in everything you do in the land you are about to enter and occupy. 
why weren't the Israelites permitted to charge each other interest? Because they were all part of God's family. Would you charge your sister interest? Would you cripple your brother with interest on a debt? Surely you would not. And yet the nobles and officials are selfishly disregarding God's instructions, enriching themselves while destroying destroying their own brothers and sisters. I want to jump to the end of the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13. Um, By this time, the wall of Jerusalem has been built. Nehemiah returned to the king of Persia for a time before returning to Jerusalem once again. Nehemiah returns to find Judah, and they're even more sinful than before. Chapter 13, verse 10. I also learned that portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Clearly it's a bad sign if God's people are ignoring God's house. Uh, Here's how things were meant to work. Book of Numbers, it says, I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. So God chose the tribe of Levi to minister before the Lord in the tent of meeting and and later the temple of the Lord. Uh, And the Israelites were to support that by paying the tithes so they could minister and give themselves fully to that work. But here in Nehemiah, God's people weren't paying the tithes and therefore the Levites returned to their fields in order to survive. God's people were neglecting God's house. What does that say about their devotion to God? The uh, the prophet Haggai uh, ministered to Judah and the people when they returned from exile and he had a message for Judah from God. It says, Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? God's people were prioritizing their own housing and their own lives rather than putting God first. Back to Nehemiah 13. In those days, I saw people in Judah shredding wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes and figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing in all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. So what's wrong with working on the Sabbath? Uh, When Israel was in Egypt, uh, they didn't get a day off. They were slaves. Their entire identity was wrapped up in their ability to make bricks. God sets them free from slavery in, uh, in Egypt, and now he wants to set them free from their identity as slaves. He gives them a Sabbath. It's a day not to work, a day to enjoy God, to enjoy each other, a day to simply be human. It's a wonderful gift. And Israel is terrible at taking a Sabbath because their identity is wrapped up in working. So in the wilderness, God tries to teach his people to take a Sabbath by providing food every day 
God provides food called manna for his people, and the people have to go out and collect it. Uh, The day before the Sabbath, he provides them with twice as much food so they don't have to collect food on the Sabbath. They can have a rest. Moses says in Exodus 16, tomorrow is to be our day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. God is reprogramming his people. They are programmed to work all the time, to see their worth in their work, and God wants them to find their worth in him. Even though they don't have to go and collect food on the Sabbath, and even though it's meant to be a day of rest, the Bible says, nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. God is trying to tell his people, you are more than workers, you are more than commerce, you are more than economic units. God is helping them to be human. The Sabbath is not a difficult rule. God says, have a break today. Life is bigger than work. Not every day needs to be about making money. God doesn't want his people to be like all the other nations. He wants them to be his people. He wants them to observe a Sabbath rest. And in Nehemiah, they have no regard for God's instructions. Who cares what God wants his nation to be like? I've got fish to sell. God's people did a hut river. They declared themselves to be independent of God. I've got my own flags. I've got my own stamps. Uh, Now, you might remember that Jesus in the New Testament sometimes broke the Sabbath. Why was that? So the Sabbath is God's gift to his people, but the religious leaders of Jesus' day had taken this rule to not work to a ridiculous extent. Uh, For example, uh, who here likes bushwalking? Do we have any people who like bushwalking here? Would you be refreshed and recharged by uh, going on a, a leisurely bushwalk on the Sabbath, perhaps? Uh, the religious leaders in Jesus' time would not let you go bushwalking on the Sabbath. There was a rule about how far you could walk on the Sabbath. Not a rule in the Bible, to be clear. A a man-made rule that totally missed the heart of God. So the rule was that you could walk a certain distance on the Sabbath, but take one more step, and now you would be working on the Sabbath. Look at Acts chapter 1 verse 12, it says that they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So a Sabbath day's journey was 2,000 cubits or 900 meters. You may walk 900 meters on the Sabbath, but any further and you are now working on the Sabbath. And Jesus calls out this ridiculous rulemaking that had nothing to do with the heart of God. He said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So in Nehemiah's day, God's people were blatantly disrespecting God's Sabbath. In the Gospels, the religious leaders were missing the entire point of the Sabbath. Back to Nehemiah 13. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I might press pause here for a second because uh, Nehemiah, he has some, perhaps some great leadership skills, but perhaps he sometimes struggles a bit with people skills. I rebuked them and called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. 
I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Nehemiah is pretty angry that people are intermarrying with other nations, but why was this a sin? Because God wanted the family of Abraham to be his people. He wanted them to be wholly committed to him, devoted entirely to him and his ways. He didn't want people marrying into other nations who worshipped other gods and then adopt those gods into their nation. He didn't want a nation of people who worshipped the Lord and also Shemosh, the god of the Moabites, or Molech, the detestable god of the Canaanites to whom people would sacrifice their own children in the fire of Molech as part of their worship practice. God didn't want his people to have anything to do with the evil of other nations. That's why they're not to intermarry. The other nations surrounding them are not innocent bystanders. They were not harmless. They had a very evil ideology, and every time God's people intermarried, they end up embracing that very evil ideology for themselves. God has reasons for his rules, but his people thought they knew better. They did a hut river. I've got my own flags. I've got my own stamps. I don't need to listen to God. I'll be fine on my own. And the entire Old Testament is one long story of people thinking they know better than God and finding out that they were wrong. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this. He says that human history is the long and terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. God's people didn't obey God when they were in their land. They didn't listen to the prophets who warned them. They experienced the destruction of their nation and the loss of freedom because of their sin. God, in his grace, grants them a new beginning, and they sin all over again. And it's not just the truth about them. It's also the truth about us. Romans 3.23 says everyone has sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standards. You don't come here this morning as some innocent bystander in our sinful world. Uh, You have contributed to the sin in our world. You have not always been honest and truthful. You have not always been loving. You have not always been patient and forgiving. Your words have deeply hurt people at times. You have not always loved the Lord as you should. You have not always put him first. And if we could see a video of your worst moments, there would be no doubt that you are not simply a victim of our sinful world, but rather you have contributed to the pain and to the sin in our world. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you are not innocent before God. And God can't turn a blind eye to sin and wrongdoing. Sin and wrongdoing is totally contrary to his nature. He is holy and righteous. Psalm 145. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. God always does what is right is never motivated by wrong, never considers doing wrong. He loves justice, he loves fairness, and will punish evil. Isaiah 61, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. Amos 2, the people of Judah have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. Um, Some people cringe at the idea that God would judge wrongdoing, but how can a God who loves right living ignore wrong living. 
Um, some people have this idea that God would never judge sin. But if God loves people, he will hate the sin that harms them. Um, some of us this term have been studying the Apostles' Creed, uh, written by Pastor Matt Chandler. And, and he makes the point that if you love your kids, you'll have wrath towards those who harm them. And I agree. I love my kids. I try to encourage them. I try to protect them. And if someone were to harm them, I assure you there would be untold fury coming from me. Um, those of you who know me would recognize that I'm not a violent person. I, I can't remember fighting anybody ever. Uh, but if someone was to threaten or to harm my kids, I'd break every bone in their body. So uh, just consider yourselves warned. I uh, love my kids, and because I love them, I will have wrath if they are harmed. What sort of dad would shrug his shoulders when his children are harmed? God loves his kids, and because he loves them, he has wrath towards the sin and wrongdoing that is so destructive in our lives. You can't have a God of love without a God of wrath towards wrongdoing. See, if he's not angry about the sin in our lives, which is so destructive... If he's indifferent about the sin that's so corrosive and so poisonous in our lives, if he doesn't care about the sin that harms us, then he doesn't love us. Where there is love, there must also be wrath. If you love someone, you'll want to protect them and you'll be angry if they are harmed. And you've got to be careful in our day. Uh, you know, about people who promote a God of love, mercy, and compassion, but have nothing to say about sin, judgment, and repentance. People who preach the love of God, but not his hatred of sin, are selling half a gospel. They are selling a flimsy, cardboard cutout gospel where God loves everyone, but shrugs his shoulders at the evil and wrongdoing in our world. Don't settle for some flimsy, cardboard cutout, watered down gospel that says God loves everyone but won't judge anyone. I mean, if we do, we'll end up with a theology described by Richard Niebuhr as a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. God loves you. And because he loves you, he hates the destructive and corrosive impact that sin has on your life. He hates seeing the destructive impact that it has on his people in the book of Nehemiah. And what the book of Nehemiah shows us, what the whole Old Testament shows us is that people are not able to meet God's standards. They constantly fall short. And so do you. Because God loves you, because he hates sin so much, and because he knows we keep falling short, he sent Jesus to rescue us. Romans 5, 8, because God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God takes sin so seriously and you're so precious to him that he came and died to pay the price for sin once and for all. Verse Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus, who is righteous, died for you and I, who are unrighteous, to bring us to God because God loves us and hates the sin that poisons our lives. And because of Jesus, we can receive God's forgiveness, and by the power of his Spirit working in our lives, he is transforming us, helping us to change so that our lives won't be constantly gripped by the effects of sin. 2 Corinthians 3. 
And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Praise God. Praise God for all that he has achieved through the work of Christ on the cross. Praise God that forgiveness is not a result of our efforts. Praise God that we're saved not because of our works, but rather because of his works. Praise God that whilst we were once captive, broken, alienated and guilty before God because of Jesus, we are now ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And we must finish this morning by taking time to repent. By taking time to repent of our sin. I'm going to pray in a moment. So I invite you all just to um, close your eyes, bow your heads, so everyone can have a bit of privacy. I'm going to say that we're sorry for the ways we've ignored God. Sorry for how we've hurt our brothers and sisters. That we're sorry for our sin. And I'm going to thank God for his marvellous mercy, for his unending grace in our lives. And I invite you to be part of this prayer because we've all sinned. We're all in the same boat. Uh, Even if you're walking with Jesus, it's important to acknowledge our sin. It's important to repent. It's important we don't become flippant or casual when it comes to sin. So if you agree with this sentiment, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hands with me as I say sorry to God for our sin and thanks to God for his grace. I'm not going to ask you to do anything more than simply raise your hands during this prayer. So if you'd like to join me in repentance and in thanksgiving, if you'd like to say sorry to God for your sin and thanks to God for his mercy, then raise your hands wherever you are. Thanks. You may put your hands down. Let me pray. God, we are sorry. We are sorry that we have been inattentive toward you. We have not always listened to you. We have not always followed your instructions. We have at times decided that we knew better, that we could run our own lives independently of you. We confess that we cannot. We need you. You know what is best for our lives. You know what is best for this world. We thank you for your marvellous mercy, for your unending love. Thanks that you did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you for taking our sin upon the cross. Thank you that while we were once captive, broken, alienated and guilty before you, we are now ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Thank you that the book of Nehemiah and the Old Testament shows us how much and how desperately we needed a saviour. Thank you that you are that saviour and our king. Amen.